This morning our scripture reading is coming from Ruth chapter 1. And if you want to follow along, you can find that on page 411 in the Bibles in front of you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they lived there about ten years, both Melon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, May the Lord show you kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come home with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to a son, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her daughter, or her daughter-in-law, goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, 
she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life ever so bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. like you all, if you're willing to, to do something with your hands a moment as we begin. Uh, I've been learning this practice from some of the other pastors in uh, our True City Network, a, a group of churches across denominations. Uh, and it's a, it's a prayer practice, but I think it fits really well with this text and, and with the story of Ruth and Naomi. So, so let's start with our hands clenched as fists in front of us. When our hands are clenched as fists, it's, it's hard for us to receive anything. If I was to come up and say, Jerry, I have a peppermint for you, and try and put it in his hand, he's, he's got nowhere to put it, right? And he might sit there and go, ah, maybe not that undignified. But, but it, it is, it's difficult to receive anything. And the story of Ruth, and especially what we're encountering in this first uh, chapter of Ruth, is is Naomi and Ruth both emptying themselves. And so we're going to start with clenched fists, but then we're going to turn our hands over and open them up. And so we let things fall out. In fact, in some sense, we're, we're, we're really not just letting go, but there is a dropping of things or a, a casting off or even a throwing out of things. We're letting things fall. And most of the first chapter of Ruth is this posture. It is this letting go, this emptying out. But at the very end, and we'll see there's actually a few places in, in the storyline itself, God starts to give some things back. And if we turn our hands over, it's this way. So it's a prayer posture we can actually adopt, not just for, for this, but elsewhere, to start our prayer with clenched fist and, and acknowledging all those things in our life that we're clinging to and we're holding on to and, and as we pray, begin to let them go. And as we let them go and those things fall off of us, to turn our hands around and start saying, okay, Lord, what do you have for me? How would you fill me up? Our Advent journey really is this as we go through Ruth. It is from a place of emptiness and in some sense from emptying ourselves to a place of fullness where Christ enters our life and fills our life and this world with his hope and his life. Chapter 1 really is a, a, a different place to begin Advent. Call me bitter, 
twice in, in this chapter, uh, uh, Naomi identifies herself with bitterness. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And in the end, call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi used to mean pleasant or the pleasant one. And here she's saying, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. It's an odd sounding, but really a very fitting place for us to begin Advent. The beginning of the Christian year is really one where we enter into an old, old story, that story of God's people before Jesus came, before they knew the Messiah, and they were living in the brokenness of their community. Not just the brokenness that Adam and Eve ushered in at the beginning, but the brokenness of a people who had heard God's promises, had been called together as God's people, and then failed again and again and again to live up to God's word and the way of life called them into. This storyline, I don't know if you caught it, but the first sentence says, in the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. If you know the story of judges in scripture, it's a time where people, God's people ran to God and followed him for a generation or two and then kind of drifted away for a couple generations and, and filled the land with idols and all sorts of things that they shouldn't have done. And then God raises up a new judge or a new leader who leads them back to God and they come running back to him for a generation or two and then they drift away. And the famines... And those famines that enter in are entering in that place right about the time when God starts to draw his people back to himself. The famines mark the furthest point away that God's people have fallen from him. So this is the setting of this story. It's a setting where the people are longing for a Messiah. It's a setting where, where people are feeling the, the weight of their sin and the consequences of their sin. And they're saying, Lord, how long and where are you? All of that is kind of bubbling in the background here. And that's really the posture that Advent has begun in. It's taking time, similar to what we do in Lent, where we confess sins. It is a similar season at the beginning where we say, Lord, we ourselves and our whole world still need you to deliver us fully. That work you began in Jesus Christ, lead it to completion a season of longing and of recognizing the brokenness around us. In that sense, Advent often begins with darkness. There's churches that actually have their first Advent series sermon and, and service earlier in the morning so that it's still dark out and you can experience the darkness even more tangibly than what we do in this part of the world. They want that darkness, but it doesn't stay at darkness. Each week, a new candle will be lit that moves us towards the light of Christ on Christmas Day. I want to give a, a context. We heard Deanie read earlier that passage from Isaiah chapter 9, which is a really famous passage uh, tied into this Advent season. But this is what comes right before it. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, 
They will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. I don't know if you heard the parallels to Naomi's story in there. They experienced the famine. She went out into the land out of the land, roaming around, trying to find a place, distressed and hum- hungry. They're, they're famished and enraged, and along the way she starts looking up and yelling at God. Not only is this call me bitter a, a good place to start because of the things we've mentioned, but, but as Advent rec- helps us to recognize our need for a Savior, it, it resonates with Heidelberg Catechism question and answer too. That question and answer starts, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort, the comfort that we belong to God in life and in death, our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And and it says if we want to know that comfort, there's three things we need to know. One, how great my sin and misery are. That's the starting place of Advent. And during this Advent journey, we're going to move towards that second one, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. It's God's work in Jesus Christ coming to rescue us. And the third part, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. We begin to taste those last two, but it's really today's starting place on that first one. So throwing everything out, Naomi those clenched fists and beginning to drop things throughout here. There's a whole bunch of things. Time of the judges, the famine in the land. She leaves the land. She leaves the promised land. Something she was never supposed to do goes out to Moab. Uh, Moab was one of those arch enemies. They were the descendants of Esau. And there's conflict all through the Old Testament between Moab and Israel. And she says, essentially, God's not doing anything for me here. I'm going to the other side. That's what her husband and her family did. They left the land and they left God behind. While in the land for a period of over 10 years, her husband dies and two sons die. And you begin to feel the weight and the emptiness. That full life that she thought would have been hers back in the land, in the promised land where where it was just famine and brokenness and she leaves that land and goes to a place that it only ends up bringing her more emptiness. She reaches a point of desperation. And in that desperation, she begins to say, okay, my plans and my ways, my husband's plans and his ways, it didn't work out how we had hoped it would. I'm going back to the land. I'm going back to Judah. I've got nothing left in this place. I might as well go back. And she tries to send her daughter-in-laws away, tries to empty out even that connection. If you're listening to the storyline, she's hitting a point where she's almost saying, I can't handle anybody else close to me dying. I need to cut off every relationship around me. I can't handle any more pain. And she's trying to shove those daughter-in-laws away to say, no more, I'm done. I'm empty. She comes back to the land and as she does she's saying the Lord's hand has turned against me 
She's hitting a place where she doesn't know what to do with the pain and the brokenness anymore. And the only thing she can think to do is say, God, this is somehow your fault. You're doing this to me. You're punishing me. You're coming after me. Gets to the point of renaming herself. Scripture names are so important. They begin to tell part of the storyline again and again and again all the way through Scripture. Abraham, his first name was Abraham, which just means father. Abraham means father of peoples. So you begin to see these names in Scripture carry weight and significance to them of telling the storyline. And when we hear in this chapter Naomi renaming herself from pleasant one to bitter. How many of you, it's easy for us, right? I'll start here. It's easy for us to look around and say, that's a bitter person, right? I mean, we can see bitterness in other people. How many of us would be willing to name ourselves as bitter? Yeah, a few? Okay, thank you. Thanks, Gina. Um, it, 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 is, it is something we don't often do. We're very comfortable pointing fingers at other people. Naomi goes, don't call me pleasant anymore. I am bitter. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I'm fed up. I've had enough. This is now my character. This is who I am. You can see her, that clenched fist, can't you? Just that pouring out, I am angry. I imagine her, if she had a pulpit, she would have been pounding on it. She holds God responsible. She goes away, says, I went away full. I've returned empty. If we track Ruth, Ruth has a similar emptying out, but it's not with the same bitterness. Ruth, in her land, a Moabitess, marries a foreigner, something that often didn't happen. You didn't marry foreigners as much in that day and age. There was too much friction culturally, but she married a foreigner, and after 10 years, that foreigner dies. And by the tone of the text and the way the text talks, we can assume pretty safely she never had children in that 10 years. In that culture, that would have given her reason to be bitter. She should have had a full life with a husband and children and, and that would have been the mark that God is good to her and that life is full. In some sense, she has every reason to stand up and say, I'm angry at you too, God, right alongside Naomi. But instead of clinging to bitterness, Ruth lives with these open hands. She lives with these open hands and so much so that she ends up saying, Naomi, I'm not going to leave you. I refuse to let you push me away. I refuse to let your bitterness become my story. I'm going to walk with you. And in pledging that, she also ends up saying, I'm going to leave my people. I'm going to leave everything that was familiar to me and I'm going to pledge myself to you and walk with you even though you're bitter. And then she does something totally unexpected. She ends up saying in this text, your God will be my God. There's a conversion experience in here that's happening. Uh, Ruth letting go. Ruth saying, I'm not going to cling to the bitterness that 
that I probably have a right to. Instead, I'm going to live with these open hands before God and I'm going to receive this new gift from him even though it's totally uncertain and, and totally new to me and I don't really understand it. I'm going to take the life God has given me, which means me being pledged to a bitter mother-in-law, and I'm going to walk with her, and I'm going to stay with her, and I'm going to receive from this God whatever this God gives to me. She leaves her home for a land and people and God she does not know, and then she uses covenantal language. Let death not separate us. Far be it from me. May God turn against me, essentially, is what she says. May God actually turn against me if I don't fulfill this pledge to you, to stay with you until death. I mean, that's often the, the language we hear in marriage, that type of pledging. But this is a friendship pledge, a daughter-in-law to the mother-in-law. I am going to stay with you. I am going to walk with you. I am going to be there we begin to hear the gospel in the midst of Ruth letting go of her whole, everything that was familiar to receive a new life that was uncertain and so far marked by the bitterness of her mother-in-law. And I'm going to enter into that. When we enter this Advent season, we too are invited to this space to recognize where our hands are full of, of bitterness and anger and frustration or, or are we willing to let things go to open them up and to turn them over to receive from God what do we need to throw out what do we need to cast off maybe one of the ways is simply to ask a question and I'm going to ask it I'm not going to ask you to respond right now but I am going to leave a minute of silence just to let this question sit with us what sorrows and bitterness are clinging to us? What sorrows and bitterness are clinging to us? Maybe to push it even a little further and to go in line with Naomi, where do we feel like that God has failed us or rejected us? Where do we feel like God has failed us or rejected us? Maybe that's a hard place for us to go. Maybe it's more tangible for us if we start here. In what ways do we feel abandoned by God's people? Left alone on our own. as we ask these questions we experience the closed fists that are in our lives 
We're going to be led through this story and through this journey to begin opening up our hands and letting go of things. And so this question, what are we willing to let go of, like Ruth does, in order to find new life in God's kingdom and among God's people? And that's really the question that Ruth is prompting us to ask as we listen to this story. What are we going to let go of? Are we willing to come before God and, and draw near to him in such a way that we're coming with those empty hands? We're willing to let go of those things that we feel we have a right to cling to and we're willing to let them go and turn our hands over to say, Lord, I'm empty. You know the good and the bad that's in me. You know everything I've harbored in my heart. I'm letting it all go before you so that you can fill me. Fill me with your life with the life of your people. These are tough questions. They're heavy questions. They're all ones that, that kind of resonate back in the background of us, especially often as we enter the season of visiting family, as we enter the season of being around other people who are saying, it's time to be cheery and happy and inside, we're going, man, I don't feel like it today. I don't want to leave us in this space today. We're not going to resolve it all by any means, but, but I don't want to leave us here today. Because throughout this text, there's been little hints of God extending his favor and blessing and I want us to pay attention to those little hints because they can help us to start paying attention to the ways God is already at work in our life, maybe that we've overlooked. One of the things Naomi says, or the text says, right as Naomi's saying, let's go back to Judah. Let's go back to the land. It says, the Lord has come to the aid of his people and there's food in the land again. There's this little hint, this little testimony right in the middle, and we might skip over it because it just seems like background material, but it's this little hint that God has remained faithful to his people, that though they were in a famine and though they were in that time of judges where they had wandered away, God has done something and he's doing something in the land to bring healing to the land and to the people so that there's food again. God is renewing his covenant promises. Ruth commits herself to Naomi. Naomi kind of begrudgingly accepts the fact that she can't talk, talk Ruth out of coming. Naomi's trying to plead. Don't come with me, Ruth. Don't come with me, Orpah. And Orpah says, okay, I'm going back home. But after stubbornly trying to get Ruth to stay, she's, all right, fine. <laughs> you want to come with me? Come with me. And she misses how good that gift is that Ruth is giving to her. She overlooks that gift of Ruth. Ruth experienced something in the midst of all of Naomi's bitterness and all of the death that that family had experienced. Ruth somehow still experiences the grace of God. So much so that she's willing to convert from, from the, the Moabite religions and, and to leave her family and culture behind and saying, I'm going with you because I can see something of a God. A God who I want to know more. And this journey that Ruth goes on becomes a discovery of God's faithfulness. 
Perhaps the place where they experience the grace the most, though, is that last sentence. I don't know if you, you caught that last sentence. Let me just read it again. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Remember where it started? In famine. And now there's a harvest. But in particular, the harvest is being experienced in Bethlehem, which literally means city or house of bread. House of bread. Bethlehem, that becomes so important to this Advent story, this story of Jesus' birth. Bethlehem, that place where God shows himself and provides the bread of life in Jesus Christ. Bethlehem. And not just that, but Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. The barley harvest was the first harvest of the season. And if there was a good barley harvest, that was generally the indicator that the rest of the harvest and the rest of the seasons that were going to come after that would be good as well. And they're returning at the beginning, which meant they would have time to store up and, and receive the crops of the land and be provided for in a way that they hadn't been provided for many years. They were about to experience fullness and grace, something that had been so absent from their life. And there's a little hint at the end of the text. It's kind of like an invitation, a, a little turn in the story. Yes, she's full of emptiness. Yes, she's full of bitterness. But that's not going to be the end of things. Something's coming. A new life is coming. There's hope. Hope is being rekindled. That's what this is today. It's a reminder for us in this season. This first candle is called the hope candle. It's a little light, a little flicker in the darkness of, of what we experience, the sorrow and brokenness of our lives, reminding us that Jesus has come and Jesus will come again. That the brokenness we experience in our lives right now is not the end of the story. It's part of the story. But it's not the end. The new life in Jesus Christ has already begun with his birth and through his death and resurrection. And it's coming again, even as he intercedes for us now at the right hand of the Father as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. And he will come back to make all things new so there'll be no more dying, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All the chaos of the world will be ended as we begin this Advent journey. Invite us in the midst of the brokenness we experience and feel in the midst of the clenched fists to begin looking at the hope that is rekindled through this gospel story. Let's pray. I am so thankful, Lord, that your scripture is not whitewashed and pristine, but contains all sorts of our brokenness and ugliness in it. 
that you're willing to, to include in your good word these stories where, where hope is mingled in with hopelessness, where bitterness is evident, where people are angry with you and, and don't know what to do with the emptiness in their lives because, Lord, that's our story too. We need these spaces where we can see people yelling before you that they are hurt and broken and empty because we need to do that too. We have clenched fists, Lord. And as open as we want them to be, we are in those spaces where we don't even know how to pry our own fingers loose. So we come before you today with clenched fists longing to be open, longing to cast things off and to let them go and uncertain of knowing how to do that. May you help us today, in this moment, maybe later today, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow or the weeks ahead, to open our hands, to let go of those things that cling to our heart where we are angry and hurt and tired and to drop them before you. That our hands might be turned over to receive from you the gift of life, a gift only you can give. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who has come and the one who will come again. Amen. invite us to sing.